Well, a hearty welcome to all of you joining us here on our Ridgely Road campus and to all of you who are part of our faith family wherever you find yourself this Sunday. The series has been called Presence, the Mystery of the Eucharist, and today we're going to be concentrating on St. Paul. This is a series, and we're in the fifth week of the six-week series. Uh, those of you who are here, if you're new or are visiting after a long while, we have a gift for you waiting at the uh, Welcome Center as you leave church today. You recall that the Eucharist that we've been studying over six weeks, we've been looking at different people in the Bible who take us deeper and deeper and deeper into the mystery and uncovering what that mystery is all about and how it relates to our own lives. The first week we looked at Abram, which was Abraham's name before God changed it to Abraham. He meets this mysterious priest king named Melchizedek. From this encounter, we drew uh, a formula for the Eucharist, namely that bread plus wine plus prayers plus presence equals Eucharist. And we saw it as early in the book of Exodus. In week two, we stepped into the crowd and into the shoes of the apostle St. John the Evangelist. In the crowd, Jesus tells us repeatedly that his flesh and blood is the bread from heaven. The mystery is starting to unfold. The bread from heaven. And he says, this is my body. He really means, this is my body. And he's asking us, do you trust my words? Are they enough for you to believe? And if so, to partake. In week three, we became the unnamed disciple in the Gospel of St. Luke. And like the two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus with a stranger, they encountered this man not knowing who he is. They get to the, the lodging, ask him to stay. He blesses bread and wine, and then he vanishes. They recognize in the blessing of the bread and wine, it is really Jesus himself. So, at this very altar, surrounded by music, the message, and ministers, we often feel that same presence, and we walk away having consumed the body and blood of Christ back into our world, our crazy, dizzy, stress-filled, worldly values world, with its empty promises, and poof, by Sunday afternoon, that presence is gone for some reason. Then last week, we saw, with the help of two great paintings, that significant meals have something in common. No matter how different the meals are, there are four C's that they share in common. One is, those who are at the meal, there's a certain connection. There's also community. Thirdly, communion. And finally, continuity. One could say that there are daily and special meals of all kinds have these same elements, but your house and your meal will look different from his house and his meal or my house and my meal. But there's something that unites all meals that are significant. And this longing to have meals together as a family kind of creates in us a longing to come back on Sundays and have meal with a bigger family, a family of faith. Yes, the Eucharist becomes the source and the summit for our own meals, and our own meals become the source and the summit for returning the week after. So, in addition, our meals at home, they take us deeper and deeper 
into a celebration and modeling of grace. They can motivate us to be more intentional about encounters, relationships, caring for one another, being compassionate. It all can happen at the dinner table. I promise you two more great works of art today. But before taking a look at them, I'd like to look more deeply into a word in the name of this series that seems a bit strange. The series is called The Mystery, Presence, the Mystery of the Eucharist. Now, Daniel, several weeks ago, talked about presence. The word I'm interested in today is mystery. What do we mean by mystery? So I'm going to give you a photograph or a painting to look at that we're all familiar with that talks about mystery. Remember this game we all played? How many of you have either played it in the past or play it now? Okay, a lot, I see a lot of folks online with my miracle vision. I can see that they're involved as well. Clue. Uh, it's interesting. We, it was a Parker Brothers game, but it wasn't invented by the Parker Brothers company. The game was actually created in England in 1943 because of the boredom that people were experiencing in the World War II air raid blackouts. So as the war dragged on, the creator, Anthony Pratt is his name, longed for the fun of English country estate murder mystery parties where guests would skulk the, ha the hallways of an old mansion, shriek, and then fall dead on the floor. Recall the thrill of discovering the mystery of who did it? Was it Colonel Mustard with the rope in the study? Uh-uh-uh-uh. It was Miss Scarlet with the dagger in the kitchen. Yeah, that Miss Scarlet, you could never trust her. Mystery is a good thing. It creates excitement and develops hunches that turn into facts. That's uncovering the mystery. So it's a good thing. It creates excitement and develops hunches that turn into facts. While the mystery of the Eucharist is not a board game, obviously, it does have some of the excitement of learning more and more about the facts of our faith. And then bingo, you get it. Well, I probably shouldn't use the word bingo. That's another game. And perhaps for another time. The important thing with a mystery is that you've connected the dots and you've deepened your understanding of the reality. We saw a bit of the mystery of presence revealed last week in the paintings of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci and The Wedding Feast by Peter Bruegel. To get us back into the sacred space that meals, yours and ours, have to offer us, we'll be looking at another two paintings that give us hints into that divine presence or the further unraveling of the mystery of the Eucharist. They're all insights that can make the difference between a real meal or chowing down a burger on the run. And as we view each, I'd once again invite you to think of a word that comes to mind that describes what you're going to now see. Let's take a look. The first painting is called Luncheon of the Boating Party, and it's by Pierre-Auguste Renoir, who was a fabulous French Impressionist. What word or words describe what you see? Fun, joy, relaxation, ordinary 
folks. Attentiveness to each other, whining and dining, some wealthy guests among others. Make a mental note of your description, of your word. Remember it. Just hold on to that for a second. The second painting is less famous and yet more poignant. It's called The Thankful Poor by Henry Asawa Tanner. This one kind of tugs at my heart. What word or words come to mind? Poverty? Thankfulness for little? Prayerfulness? Silence? Dignity? Profundity? Presence? Again, capture the word. Now the words from the first and second painting all have something in common very disparate though they be, as disparate as your meals are from mine or from others. And those words are connection, community, communion, continuity. Let's unravel a bit of the mystery that surrounds these four characteristics of important meals. The similarities around the paintings of meals and your meals could be the connection. Notice there was food, drink, Relationships, invitation. There was community, the experience of having a tabletop that united the people around the table. A level playing field, joining heart to heart level, mouth to mouth level, feeding on the same food, eyeballs to eyeballs. Communion, the eating, the savoring, the relishing, the glances and smiles at others at the table. These are not accidental or casual. They are communion, union with, come union, at a one-on-one -on -one level. And so extending beyond the two persons at the table to the others at the table, continuity. There's some sense of hope that there will be another time, and another time, and so on. That clearly creates a sense of projection into the future, the continuity. I'm claiming that our daily and special meals, your daily and special meals, are the foundation for your affinity to eat at this table. Once we understand how meals both connect and nourish us, then weekly mass attendance becomes an answer to the same longings at a deeper level. Not only is the mass the source and the summit of our communion, but even at home, our meals become the source and the summit of your communion. That's how they prepare you for this, and this prepares you for those. So, think back to the old days of the Sunday breakfast after mass, or in our house, it was Sunday dinner after the 12.30 Mass. Jesus was present at Mass, and he continued that presence at this special table in our homes. So meals, whether it's your table or this one, take us deeper and deeper into celebration, into modeling good behavior, into grace-filled moments with each other. And they can motivate us to be intentional about our caring and loving and forgiving one another. 
They did that in last week's homework. This week, we're looking at the Eucharist through the eyes of St. Paul. That's the big thing, St. Paul. You'll recall Paul is the guy who persecuted the early Christians. He was knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, and he becomes the chief contributor to New Testament epistles. He's kind of the theologian. And I promise you, in a moment, it will be St. Paul who will help you unravel this mystery of how Jesus is present even more deeply. The mystery he unravels is how can that be? How can that bread and wine be the body and blood of the walking, breathing, resurrected Jesus? The substance of the bread becomes the flesh. And this is our Catholic Church's teaching. You'll recall it. You all did so well last week. It's called transubstantiation. And it means that while the bread and, re bread and wine remain looking like bread and wine, the accidents, in substance, beneath it all, it's the body and blood of Jesus. So, in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul uses language that shows he believes the Eucharist is literally Jesus and not a mere symbol. Here's what he says. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Pretty clear. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup than the hammer. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks with judgment of himself. Pretty serious. He believes this so firmly. There are four arguments he gives. Now, we're getting into a little bit of theology, so don't, don't lose me, and I won't lose you. A little bit of theology that helps us explain why and how that is Christ's flesh and blood. The first argument is the argument, the guilt that is associated with blood. Now, this is theology, and Paul is the theologian, the first big theologian, on the sacred scripture and the life of Jesus Christ. So his first argument of four is the guilt that is associated with blood. His first argument has to do with this association. Paul uses homicidal language. Yeah, homicidal language. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Guilty. The phrase guilty of blood is an Old Testament figure of speech that connotes murder. Recall that in the New Testament, where Pontius Pilate washes his hands and declares himself innocent of Jesus' blood, he means that he's not guilty for murdering him. We even use this language today when we say someone has blood on his hands. By the way, I'm not ignoring what St. Paul means by partaking the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. That's just something for another message. But suffice it to say, if it's piqued your interest, suffice it to say that humility and admitting our sinfulness go a long way in making us worthy. And it's why we say before we approached the altar this morning, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul will be healed. 
Now, back to blood. To incur the guilt of blood, the victim has to be present. For example, if I have a picture of someone that I consider my enemy, and I tear it to pieces because I'm angry as a way of doing him harm, I wouldn't be guilty of the person's blood. I'm only attacking a symbol of my enemy. However, if I see him crossing an intersection and I run him down, God forbid, I would then be guilty of his blood. So Paul is clearly saying that we're guilty of Jesus' blood if we partake of the Eucharist unworthily. The only way, honestly, to make sense of this belief is that Paul believes the Eucharist is literally Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. amen. Now, let's look at, now at the second argument for Paul's claiming that bread becomes the real flesh of Jesus. An offering of real flesh. So, first argument we saw was blood. This one's got to do with flesh. Paul draws a comparison. I'm going to get a little theological again. He draws a comparison between an offering of bread and wine in the Old Testament, book of Leviticus, and Jesus' offering of bread in the New Testament. And this bread, because it was an offering to God in Leviticus, anybody, by the way, could make this offering of bread. Any faithful Jew could do it. Didn't have to be a rabbi. Didn't have to be a temple priest. Anybody. But the by very act of offering some bread to God, that bread became holy because it was dedicated in this offering by any uh, believing Jewish person. It took on the presence beyond what was only seen because of its dedication by the person. While both Leviticus and Paul speak of eating unworthily and incurring a severe consequence for having done so, in Leviticus, one eats the holy offering of bread offered by anyone. But in Paul, one eats the Eucharist offered by the priest. This parallel suggests that Paul understands the Eucharist to be a real flesh offering, just like the real offering of holy bread in Leviticus. But, big but here, for Paul, it is Jesus who offers the bread as his own body. Two very different breads, if you will. But who's doing the offering? Anybody? Regular bread. Jesus calling the bread his body. In Leviticus, it remains holy bread. In Paul, Jesus becomes the very bread. Some Christians claim that the Catholic Church teaches things not found in the Bible. I have to say, in this case, Paul's belief that the Eucharist literally is Jesus' body and blood proves otherwise. And I'll argue that with anybody. Catholics can be assured that if Paul were here this morning at the Mass we just concluded, we would see him kneeling with us during the Eucharistic prayer. We see him in the communion line, coming up, bowing, making a throne, or putting out his tongue to receive the Lord. Or we see him in the chapel on a Sunday morning before Mass in adoration before the Blessed Sacrament. Anybody who claims that bread does not mean body of Jesus 
needs to look at what Jesus himself has to say about this. I am the bread of life. Two quotes from John. The bread that came down from heaven. The living bread from heaven. These are Jesus' words. The bread which also which I will give you for the life of the world is... It's all there. Third, the argument is a, uh, excuse me, the third argument is presence and power. I said four arguments. There were three, there were three arguments, I'm sorry. Presence and power. In this third argument, Paul assures, so we had blood the first, flesh the second, and now power that comes from bread and flesh. In this third and final argument, Paul assures us that it isn't only presence we experience in the Eucharist this morning, but it's power as well. So you were there present, you received, but maybe you don't know, you also received empowerment. What was that empowerment about? Well, in 1 Corinthians, he says this. Is not the cup a, particip a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread, we break a participation in the body of Christ? Participation, key word. Because there is one bread there, and we who are many there, become one body, for we all share in the one bread. So sharing the one loaf is the cause of our unity as a parish. Sharing the one bread is actually what brings about that unity. Can you see the importance of the sharing of the bread, not merely viewing of the sharing? Yeah, I'm making the case for the importance of receiving the Eucharist and not just being present. We often say that it's music, message, and ministers that are the cause of this high-energy, one-hour experience each Sunday. Today, we understand while that may be true, there's a fourth M that needs to be added to music, message, ministers, meal. I heard one. Yes, you get a double coupon. Yes, fourth is the meal, the Eucharist itself. Here at Nativity, we may emphasize the first three because they are the things that we can influence and improve on, and we're already pretty close to perfection. We know that, but we're working at it still. Consuming the Eucharist, then, is the high-energy jet fuel that helps you take off and stay afloat. So, for those who like summaries, to reiterate Paul's claims. This is the theological, theological summary. The guilt that is associated with blood. Second argument, a peace offering of real flesh. And the third, that not only presence in our eating, but power in our being one. This is no esoteric, highfalutin claim. This is no reaching for a way to falsely claim a truth. It's Bible-based facts about blood, about peace offerings, and about the power of presence. Feeding on the flesh and blood of the Lord is an extraordinary way of getting a fresh start every Monday morning, a fresh start every week, because this is what you end up with as you leave, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' offering of blood, 
the absolution Father White gave you at the beginning of Mass, the reestablishment of peace and connection with the Father by consuming the Father's son, only Son, and as a source of unity of the very body of Christ. Friends, I know of no better way to begin this week or any week than with what we've done in this past hour together. So, homework. Take five minutes of silence each morning by calling to mind and savoring one argument, one argument of the proof of Jesus' presence in the Eucharist that deeply moves you, not just in your head with belief, but stirs you, stirs you, where it contains some emotion, some investment, some skin in the game, if you will, understanding not just your head, but your heart. So I'm going to list them for you, a few of them. And I just want you to see which one you would find most motivational, because that's the thing that's going to get you back here next week. So the power of the meal, is it Jesus' blood shed for you out of love for you? You're going to have to choose one of these. Is it the forgiveness you've received by the beginning, at the beginning of Mass? Is it the body of the Lord in your very hands, the body for which you bowed, enthroned, and consumed? Or is it at the, health, the heartfelt Thanksgiving song that we played after communion that was so moving? Or is it empowerment that you feel like strengthened, like, whoa, it is jet fuel? Or a favorite of mine, is it becoming what you've eaten, that you start to feel it, and unlike the hamburger becoming you, you become what you've eaten, and you can start to feel that coursing through your very veins. Whatever it is for you, keep that in mind. Know it's the factor that'll keep you coming back because you need to feast, you need to eat, and that will get you here. No matter where you are in the world, and I'm talking to the online community as well, you are always welcomed. You can always be connected, not just visually, but in terms of being fed. Hope to see you here next week for another grounding in the real presence. It's interesting that each week you grow deeper and deeper in presence, and for yourself, you're unveiling the mystery. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, you hold us in existence with your love. You sustain us with your very spirit in every breath we take. We acknowledge that in addition, you give us the very flesh and blood of your dear son to strengthen us to do your will. Today, with the help of St. Paul, we have uncovered more deeply the mystery of Jesus' presence in the simple elements of bread and wine at this table and at our own tables at home. Readied with this revelation, animate our own table fellowship, not only here at Sunday Mass, but in the gatherings around our domestic tables. In those gatherings, we are assured that Jesus is always the welcome guest. How blessed we are to know you, to love you, to act in your name. We pray in thanksgiving through Jesus our Lord. Let us stand and sing. 
Thanks for watching. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single video. You can be part of our mission to love God, love others, and make disciples by sharing this video. We're grateful you're part of this community.